All right. Well, starting new Sunday school class today, and the title of our class is For the Beauty of the Earth, Christianity and the Arts. And um, I know for some of you, you hear that and you get really excited and say, oh, I'm really glad we're going to deal with this in church. And others of you hear that and say, wow, I really wish I was with all the other people on vacation this weekend. Um, But I'm going to uh, try and bring us all to a place where we can have uh, a a biblical appreciation for uh, for the arts. And we'll get into what I mean by that and what that... that, uh, what that looks like from the scriptures. So the church really has a very long history in what we call the arts. It's, it's uh, far from being an area of discovery that we should just relegate to secular academics, although uh, much of it has been, unfortunately, especially in modern uh, evangelical Christendom. Uh, but the study of the arts is very important. It's a very uh, often forgotten aspect of church life for Uh, for Christians. And there's reasons for that, and we'll deal with those reasons historically. Uh, But whether we have thought about it or not, uh, the the church has engaged uh, with the arts all throughout its history, and all of us as Christians engage with the arts on a daily basis. And uh, a lot of times it's without thinking about it, it's without knowing it, it's without ever really paying much mind to it. But we're going to be thinking about, over the next few weeks, what the Bible teaches Christians about art, about music, about literature, about film, about theater, uh, all of these things that are generally considered the arts. What does that look like from a biblical perspective? How do we as Christians engage with these things? And terms, uh, terminology, things that we often talk about, Uh, What do they mean? How do we define these things? For example, if I'm to say that something is beautiful, what do I mean by that? How do we even define what beauty is? Maybe you've never even really thought to try and do that. We just have some idea of the word beauty and sort of what it means, but have you ever tried to define beauty? Is beauty an objective reality or is it something that is, quote-unquote, in the eye of the beholder? How should Christians think about being creative in a created world? What is our role as people that God has commanded to take dominion over this earth? We have a cultural mandate to create culture. So what does that look like for Christians and particularly in the area of the arts? Are Christians confined to only experiencing or taking in uh, art uh, that is explicitly Christian or do we have the biblical freedom to enjoy things that are, not, uh, that are not created simply with Christianity or biblical themes in mind? So a lot of questions that we're going to be working through and identifying uh, also along the way, how does all of this fit within the history of the church? How has the church worked through these, thought about these, and how has the history of the church shaped the way that we go about engaging with the arts today? So... A lot to discuss. I want, hopefully, uh, to spend a lot of time in this course. We're going to look at some things. I have an image up now. We'll look at that later. Uh, so we're going to have some, some pictures 
of artwork to look at. We're going to listen to some music. We might watch a few clips from various things uh, to, uh, to engage with all the various aspects of the arts as we begin to think about these things as Christians. So, before we jump into reading the text or talking about anything else, I want to hear from you. So when, when we, you know, I, m- I mentioned beauty, that's one thing, but what about art? When I say art, what is that? What do you think of? When I say art, what is art? Okay, yeah, yeah. So Alan immediately thinks of the Sistine Chapel, and if you think uh, of the beautiful, beautiful, very famous, uh, wonderful, um, in many ways, transcendent artwork that uh, you see there. Absolutely. Yeah, Dusty. Okay, good. Yeah, so some art is, uh, is uh, about the aesthetics of it, what it looks like. And in looking at it, we find it pleasing and, uh, and it creates an emotional response, right? There's something to be felt with the arts. Absolutely. Yeah, Tris. Music, yeah. The things that we hear. Uh, and there's all kinds of music, and we're going to look at that and, and, uh, and talk about that, because uh, if you've been a Christian for more than a couple days, you realize that uh, there's some disagreements about what is good music or what is even acceptable for Christians, and we're going to talk about those things. Yeah, Sean. I think if I was to define art, mm-hmm. I would say uh, creative expression. Okay, good. Yeah, art is a creative expression. That's a good, a good summary of that. Sure. Anything else? Yes, yes, and that's uh, very Tolkienian of you that you would talk about being a sub-creator and we'll talk about what J.R. Tolkien teaches us about being uh, sub-creators in a created world, but that's absolutely right. Um, now, how about this? What do you think about art? That's a different question entirely, right? What is it, but what do you think about it? Now, maybe you're going to, you're going to think in terms of uh, music, I'm pretty sure, probably. Is there anyone here who's completely indifferent to music? You don't care about music. You don't listen to it. You want nothing. You don't. It's whatever. I didn't assume that was the case. I'm glad to hear that, too, or see that, I suppose. Um, what about, uh, what about uh, film? Watching a movie or a TV show? Um, I'm sure we've all enjoyed that at some point in our lives, right? It's not something we sort of cast off and say it's meaningless and I want nothing to do with it. Um, Charlie? Yeah. Yeah, so as we, as we work through this, we're going to think about the natural world and how that communicates something to us about what it means to be a creator and what that looks like in terms of our role in creation as being sub-creators in, in all of this. So, yes, the Lord himself creates some majestic, beautiful things for us to experience. And as Dusty said, they, they bring about uh, sometimes uh, something of an emotional response. If you've ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, it is breathtaking. You will never see anything like that anywhere else in this world, and it is absolutely captivating, and you can't help but have an emotional response. In fact, I would say if you don't, there's something fundamentally flawed about you as a creature. It is, uh, it is uh, absolutely amazing. What about, uh, what about visual art? I'm going to ask you to be honest, be a little vulnerable. We're not going to judge you yet. We'll wait till the end of the class to do that. 
But yeah, paintings, photography, who's, who, drawings, whatever. Who looks at it and is like, eh, whatever. I would never go to an art museum. Steve, I, was, I would have guessed months ago, before I even knew I was going to do this class, that you would have answered that question in that way. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, same thing? It's in your DNA, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Yes, happy little Bob Ross, absolutely. All right. Heather raised her hand. She doesn't like art. <laughs> Our resident, amazing artist. <laughs> who, uh, who here has been to an art museum, and as you're there, you're just absolutely immersed, captivated, lose track of time, and love everything about it? Yeah. I, I, when I go, some sort of... I went to the Sistine Chapel. Uh-huh. I honestly, you know, it was... And I know that's not really the right answer, but that's how I was there. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're being honest. Uh, <laughs> right, so we all have different responses to these things, and one of the reasons that I believe we respond differently to various works of art is because... Uh, we haven't all been um, instructed, and primarily from Scripture, but also uh, from other sources, in how to look at it, how to think about it, how to enjoy it, and what are the elements of it that might change the way that we look at these things. So there could be a particular image that you look at initially and think, it does nothing for me, it means nothing. But then when you learn some of the facts about it, when you engage with the details of it, um, that, might, uh, that might change to some level. Who here um, cringes at the thought of sitting down on a rainy afternoon and reading a fiction novel? Austin, all right. Heather, Billy, all right. Well, I will tell you, I, uh, there was a time in my life where the thought of reading fiction to me was, it was just, it, that's, that's for children. It's... Uh, you know, you read bedtime stories and that's it. But uh, over the years, I've really, um, I've really enjoyed getting to understand more about literature and ab- absolutely love the thought that uh, at some point in my life, again, I'll have the time to simply sit and read for enjoyment and get immersed in a story as opposed to always reading um, academic literature or whatever that's nonfiction. So, uh, excuse me. So what about... Uh, what about Christian art? If we say something is Christian art, what do you think, well, what does that mean to you, or does it mean anything at all? Does that differ in any way? Josh? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a frequent critique of that which people might call Christian art, that it is uh, often of, of not, the, not the quality that we might see outside of what people Define as being Christian. Good, Tris. Okay, good, and that's that's an important question, and it's actually a very a heated debate. Often, is it is there Christian art, or is it simply art created by Christians? Mm-hmm. Yep, it can be cheesy or cringy. Again, depending on the medium. So. Um, some would classify something like a painting by Thomas Kincaid as Christian art. It's sort of become 
staple in at least 80s, 90s, uh, more probably fundamentalist Christian homes, or the uh, picture of the old man, and I'll, I'll add some of these later on um, in the class, but you think of the old man sitting at his kitchen table with his hands praying and a loaf of bread, you're probably familiar with that. Is that Christian art because he's taking on uh, the posture of a man who's praying? Um, or what about, um, what about in the realm of film? Uh, there's always a lot of debate about movies that are, uh, are classified as Christian. I've never seen it. I've heard about it. Um, but are they, uh, are, are they Christian or are they just movies made by Christian people and it just so happens that they're trying to engage on Christian themes? So there's all kinds of things to start thinking about. How do we know? Uh, we talked about beauty. How do we know if something is beautiful? How do we define that? What is, does anyone want to take a stab at it? What is beauty? Yeah, I'll... I'll just let you, look, there's entire books written on this one question, so don't assume that you have to be able to answer the whole thing, but take a stab at it. What is beauty? Oh, I'm saying? Okay, some would say that it's in the eye of the beholder, which would mean that uh, if that's true, then beauty doesn't, is not an objective reality, that everyone should be able to look at something or hear something or experience something and say that it's beautiful altogether, but it's a preference-based thing. Scientifically speaking, symmetry. Okay, yep, that comes up a lot, the idea of symmetry. Something is often identified as beautiful because of the symmetry that's involved, and there's been a lot of studies on that, and especially with regard to uh, to the human figure. Um, is someone, if we look at a bunch of faces of people and classify whether or not we decide uh, if we think they're beautiful or not, a lot of that comes down to how symmetrical our faces are. Um, yeah, Dusty. Yeah. Okay, so maybe for you, uh, an understanding of musical beauty is um, you really, you can't imagine anything better than the Grateful Dead uh, but if you hear a Bach fuge, you kind of just shrug your shoulders and walk away. So, um, yeah, that maybe has something to do with our, uh, with our environment and our upbringing, for sure. Okay, good. We're going we're gonna to dive in. We'll probably spend uh, a lot of time engaging with that question. What is beauty? How do we know if something is beautiful? Um, and the reality is if you look up beauty or beautiful in the Scriptures, you're going to see... A multitude of references. You can't read far in the Bible without one of those words or concepts coming up. And again, it's something we probably often just read in the scriptures and have an assumption that we know exactly what we mean by that, but we've never stopped, probably most of us, to try and define it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe, maybe there's a standard and there's, there's slight deviations from that standard on either side of uh, objectively we can all agree this is one way or the other, uh, but maybe there's, there's a bit of a sliding scale to where some things we look at and say, uh, we can all agree that that's, uh, that's ugly or that's not pleasing 
uh, not beautiful versus something we can all. I had a professor once say that if you look at a rose and you smell the rose and it's perfect in its form and everything else, and you can't say that it's beautiful, the problem's not with the rose, the problem is with your soul. <laughs> you have a soul problem if you can't see the beauty of a rose. You may not, it may not be your particular thing that you want to fill your house with roses, but objectively, there's something about a rose in God's creation that we can look at and at least agree this is a beautiful part of God's creation. Yeah. Yeah, and we're, yeah, that's, I want to spend a lot of time there thinking about how is all of this in relation, what is God teaching us through creation, and where do we see all that in the scriptures, of course, yeah. Well, also keep in mind that it's not always purely visual. Right, right, exactly. Yep, we have, well, all of our senses are engaged in the arts, right? Good. Yep, things we smell, the things we see, the things we hear, right? And, and the environment in which we engage with the arts matters as well, right? Taste, uh, yeah, culinary arts, absolutely. Good. Well, let's think about um, let's think about some things from the scriptures. Go to First Chronicles in the Old Testament. First Chronicles sixteen. First Chronicles sixteen. If someone will read for us, nice and loud, verses twenty-eight through thirty. Great. Thank you. All right. So this is part of a psalm of David here in. First Chronicles, and two things that really stand out here. Uh, one is this word that he uses, this word glory. Glory. We, again, another word that we see all throughout the Bible, and maybe you've never spent much time trying to define that word. What is glory? What are we talking about when we talk of the glory of God? Well, in general, what we're referring to is God's majesty. His, his weightiness, his heaviness, his worth, his significance, all of these things sort of encapsulate what we mean when we speak of God's glory. And this is closely related to his, to his holiness. And the psalm calls on the people to worship God. How? How does it say we are to worship God? Yes, in the splendor of holiness or What's another word for splendor? Reverence, what? Beauty. beauty, yes. And so he's saying in the beauty of holiness, worship the Lord. So he conjoins this idea of holiness to the glory of God, and this, he's saying, is what is beautiful about God. Right? The fact that God is glorious the fact that God is holy, when we understand those two things together, we understand something of what we mean when we speak of the beauty of God. And so he's telling us, David's telling us in this psalm, that we are to worship God in his beauty. Right? Have you ever thought of our worship in that way? And we'll get into this a lot, but if you consider the elements of worship that we engage in, should we just engage in worship thought, thoughtlessly and sort of just jump in and go through the motions? Or is there something more to it? Should we ensure that the things that we do, the words we speak, 
the way we speak them, the way that we read the scriptures, the songs we sing and the way that we sing them. Maybe there's something to the reality that we should ensure that they are beautiful because we're worshiping God in his beauty. Let's think of another passage. Psalm, go to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Someone read for us verse 4. Thank you. So he calls the Lord beautiful. I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What does that mean? Yeah, Dusty. Okay. Okay. In general revelation that we would recognize God's work and that we would, uh, we would, uh, and this Psalm 19 speaks of that. Paul deals with that in Romans 1, that the beauty of the creation is revealing God because we recognize that it is from the hand of a beautiful creator. Good. What else? Okay. Right. He's speaking here of God's attributes, right? This is who God is. It's not just that God is beautiful, but it is who He is. It's a part of who... It's hard when you're talking about God to even say it's a part because He's not made up of part this, part that. But you understand what I'm saying, that this is, this is God in His godness, if you will. Philosophically, that's how we would talk about that. God is all-beautiful. And everything we're going to look at, think about, listen to, watch, and that we identify as beautiful is informed by the beauty of God. Just as anything that is true is true because God says it's true. Just that anything that is good is good because God has called it good. In the same way, anything that is beautiful is beautiful because God has said it is beautiful. Now, there's, I mentioned three things there. And these have been uh, aspects of the Christian life and the humanities uh, since the beginning of the church, at least, and certainly prior. And that is the good, the true, and the beautiful. Now, these three things you'll often hear talked about. They're often written about. But we need all three of them. And this has been recognized throughout the ages, not just among Christians, but even among those noble pagans who believe that a virtuous life consisted of these three elements, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Now, unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians have abandoned certain aspects of this trivium, if you will, that are intended to be held together, that we have a lopsided understanding of what God intends for us if we don't understand the good, the true, and the beautiful. So the good, we're talking about uh, morality, about ethics, about the law, and I think generally we're pretty good about thinking through those things, what is right, what is wrong, dealing with sin, dealing with God's law. Uh, that's what we mean when we say the good. What is good? How do we define that? Uh, the true. Well, we're all good Reformed Christians. We like to study doctrine. We like theology classes. You were hoping that you were going to walk in here today, maybe, and that was going to be what we were doing. We like studying the Bible, and we like going into uh, all of the various aspects of that, and that's a good and right thing. That's what we talk about when we say the true. But the beautiful, how much time do you spend intentionally contemplating the beautiful in the same way that we think about what's good and true? 
thinking about what's beautiful and why and whether or not it actually is beautiful and how God is glorified in something that we determine is beautiful. How often do you see art and just sort of glance at it and think either that's nice or I don't like it or I don't know what that is, I'm moving on or whatever. Uh, For you, is music just sort of background noise in your life? Or have you ever sat and listened to music and been so gripped by it, so captivated by it that you forget anything else that's going on? Have you been moved emotionally? Have you been moved to tears by music? I remember when I... uh, when I was in high school, I worked at Starbucks, and uh, on my breaks, I had these 15-minute breaks, and at the time, um, I, was, uh, I was doing a lot of reading for school, and I would go sit in the corner and put my, my headphones on, and I had my, what did I have then? I had a Discman a CD player, and I had a recording of Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 3. Now, this is, and I, I can't get through... Uh, this next few months without playing this at some point, um, in my opinion, I believe probably one of, if not the most beautiful piece of music that's ever been written, it's certainly uh, a little less arguable that it's probably the hardest piece of piano music that's ever been written. Uh, But there was one day, and I still remember this, I sat in the corner and I had the headphones on and I was listening to The Rock 3 while I was trying to read and I just... I didn't realize what I was doing. I stopped reading entirely, and I was just listening. I was so engaged. I was so moved, and I just started to weep. And I didn't know why. I couldn't explain to you why, but this piece of music just moved me to that point where I lost track of time. I didn't hear my timer going off to get back to work and everything else. I was just captivated by this. Have you ever had an experience like that? How about reading literature? Have you ever read and got swept away into another world with different rules, looking through the eyes of another writer, other characters? How many times have you sat and watched a performance in a a theater, not just to be entertained, but to think about why are you being entertained by this in the first place? And so God is the foundation of all of these things. God is the foundation of what is good. He defines what's good. He's the foundation of truth and defines what's true. And so we must understand that God is the foundation of beauty. He defines what's beautiful because he is all beautiful. Now, in light of all of this, you will find that many Christian artists, painters, photographers, sculptors, fiction writers, screenwriters, actors, musicians, They're misunderstood and they're frustrated oftentimes in the church because the church, by and large, in our culture, has sort of cut off the arts as sort of this thing that really doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. So it's nice, I may or may not like it, but it really doesn't have any bearing on my Christian faith. But we fail to realize that some of the greatest displays of beauty that we can name from history in the world, you won't be surprised, come from the church. It's the church that's done this. Handel, Bach, Milton, Shakespeare, these are Christians, and there are certainly many others. But when we name the greats, when it comes to the arts, a lot of them are Christians. We have pioneers that are straight from the church. But unfortunately, we've sort of detached in a lot of ways from the arts. But I want you to think about this. Look at Exodus chapter 31. 
And this will give us a sense of where we're going. What does God think about the arts and artists? Exodus 31. And I'll read beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Beelzebul, the son of Uri, son of Hur, and the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oheliab, the son of Asemek, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So what is God doing here? Yeah, Dusty. Yes, good. He is gifting artists. He says, I'm giving them the ability. And there's something really unique about how he does that. How does he gift them with this ability? What does he say? Good. He fills them with his spirit. Did you know that the first mention of people being filled with the Holy Spirit in the Bible is right here? And that's dealing with artists. That's dealing with craftsmen. That's dealing with those who deal with the materials of the earth to create something beautiful. Now here we're dealing with the tabernacle. But does anyone have an illusion as you read through Exodus that God didn't care what his tabernacle looked like? He cared deeply about it, right? It's very specific. All of the details. And that wasn't just about getting the people to understand that God is, is detail-oriented and that they need to obey every one of his words. That's certainly part of it. But it's also a part of the reality that we're representing something of who God is and what God desires. And that must be beautiful. And so he fills his craftsmen, his artists, with his spirit that they might be able to do this. This is the first mention. They're there to make the objects, and God was concerned to not only use artists, but to endow them with the power of the Spirit to ensure that they were doing that which met His standard of excellence. Isn't that fascinating? Now, in addition to that, we need to recognize that there are also prohibitions against the misuses of art throughout the Scriptures, and and certainly our minds are all probably quickly drawn to the second commandment, right? That there are wrong ways to use art in, uh, in its creation, in the church, and in worship. There are some forms of art that gets God, get God's blessings, and there are other forms of art that are prohibited. And so there is a way that we can conclude that there is good art that pleases and glorifies God. There is bad art because it's prohibited. And so we see these problems come out as we walk through the Bible. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. You see Paul dealing with it a bit in the New Testament. But God designed certain things. So all of this, and the problem we see with Israel was that they were taking forms that God had created, or he had uh, commanded would be created, for worship to help, to assist in worship, and they've taken externals, and they've taken rituals, all of these things that God used or designed to enhance and point to the truth of his word, but they turned them into um, objects of worship themselves, or they became sort of 
theories or philosophies that needed to be reformed. And so they became idols. And so what happens throughout the church is that we think about these things and we see them as idols. And in seeing them as idols, we reject the forms altogether. And the church has certainly been guilty of doing so. Uh, And so we want to be a bit more nuanced and balanced. So what about this? We're going to look at this and we're going, as I said, we'll listen to some things, watch some things. But today I just have six images I want to show you. Now I'm going to just uh, scan through them real quick. You've been looking at that one. So here's another. I want you to think about those. I want you to think, one of the questions for you to think about, as a Christian, how do I think about something like this? Does this mean anything? Is there any purpose here? What do you think? Looks meaningless, Looks meaningless? okay, Tris. Yeah, Dusty. Remarkably poignant observations, and I'll explain in just a moment. Yeah, Rob? We're going to get there, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's an excellent, that's really what we need to know, right? In order to really grab at it. Shannon? Yeah, they, yeah maybe you're looking at it and saying, is this oriented in the right way? I don't, I don't know. Heather? How they're made, like what materials are used to make them. Yeah, that's good. That's an important aspect we're going to talk about. Josh? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So if you're a, if, good, if you're a lawyer and you're giving your closing argument in the courtroom, the color of the tie that you wear, that matters because people respond differently to those things. Yeah, yeah Christina. Okay, maybe it's hanging up in a dentist office and it's just something you go past and say, oh, that's nice. It just sort of, okay. Oh, and you put something on top of it. Yeah, okay. It's a meme. (laughs) It's scrapbook page that you put, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I think we're uncovering something important here that just like as we read literature that with art, perhaps, it's important that we understand something of the intent and the material and all of this. So let me, let me fill you in on some of, these, uh, some of these details, and we'll look at a few different ones. Um, this is art by a guy by the name of Mako Fujimura, and this is a series of paintings that he did um, back in the late 90s called Images of Grace. Um, now, Mako is a master in the ancient Japanese art of Nyanga. And, it's, uh, and in this, he, he got his PhD in this artwork in Japan. He moved to New York City, was a part of Redeemer Church in New York City, where Pastor Tim Keller was pastor. And then his artwork became very famous. Um, people were spending thousands and thousands of dollars to have these pieces of art hanging in their, their homes, their office place, whatever. Um, and here's what he does. So he takes mineral pigments, which are semi, he takes semi-precious stones and he crushes them up and he uses them uh, to create these colors. So we're talking about things like malachite and um, azurite. And so these get crushed up. 
And when they're ground down, they become a little bit of a lighter shade of the actual color of what it is. And then if they're coarsely ground, then it's, it's more intense, it's darker. So he, he plays with the colors by how much he grinds up or doesn't grind up these various uh, metals or stones. And then he applies them to paper, to a thick paper, and then um, he has obviously done this sort of in the, in the form of a Western style of abstract art. Um, and this use of mineral pigments gives his work this depth of color, but that wasn't his primary goal. His primary goal was to achieve something of transcendent beauty. Now, it's one thing to look at this on a screen while you're sitting there at church. It's another to see something that is bigger than you on a massive canvas, and you're standing there, and, and you're almost sort of engulfed by it because it's so large, and, and the size of a piece of art really matters in how we look at it. And so this doesn't really compare to seeing the original and seeing the texture of it and everything else, but you get a sense of what maybe he's going for here. Uh, you might not think of much of it. Some of you have expressed, well, it doesn't really, it just looks like some color splattered on a page and it's not a big deal. Um, if you saw, this, this piece of art probably took uh, a significant amount of his time to create, to think about what is going to be here, how is this going to look. Um, and when you figure out, though, hopefully, at least, when you figure out what's going on with the artist, what he has in mind, how he's doing it, and why he's doing it, maybe that helps change things a bit. Think about this. For Mako, each mineral pigment has a symbolic value. And he only uses colors and materials that are related to a theme of Scripture. Here's what he says. I use them not just because they are beautiful, which they are, but because they have a wonderful lineage. I use them because of the specific symbolism. For me, mineral pigments have significance. The sim they symbolize God's spiritual gifts to people and the glories of the saints in the Bible. In Solomon's temple, these precious stones were embedded in the walls as well as in the garments of the high priests. And when you look closely at these paintings, you see that they have a peculiar surface. They glitter. They shine. Crushed minerals symbolize gifts both from heaven and earth and point to my deeper struggle to return the gifts given to the Creator. God has always been a symbol of divinity because it does not change. Excuse me, not God, gold. Gold has always been a symbol of divinity because it does not change. I have used, so this, this image here. I have used this image of castating gold as a metaphor. It speaks of the city of God descending among the cities of men. So you kind of get the sense that this is, this. if you look at it from top to bottom, there's something descending here in this artwork. Silver, on the other hand, that does change. It oxidizes. It tarnishes over time. So it's a symbol of, of death within. In Japan, silver has always symbolized death, but, always, but also a fleeting reality of our existence. In Japanese culture, death is seen as something that needs to be viewed as something beautiful. And then red is a symbol of atonement and redemption and it speaks to something of God's redeeming work in the lives of his people and so these are the ideas behind what he's doing for any of you who just saw these as splatters of paint does that change it for you at all good so one of the one of the questions that comes out of all of this is when I look at something like this and I understand that and I still maybe don't see it in that way, does that mean that this is either good or bad? Do I, uh, do I have to walk away from it with some 
uh, deeper sense or uh, understanding of a reality that I didn't recognize beforehand? Or can I simply enjoy it for the sake of enjoying it because I recognize it as something beautiful that was created by one who is seeking to be a faithful sub-creator in that which God has called him to and gifted him with? That's an important thing for us to be thinking about. Um, as you walk through art museums, if you go to the Met in New York City, if you go to where you get away from some of the crazy stuff, and there is crazy stuff, and we'll talk about that, especially when you get into postmodern art. But if you get to the, the massive paintings that are the size of a wall, we're talking here, I mean, huge. We don't, probably none of us has a wall in our house that would fit some of these things. Um, most of this is religious art and, more specifically, is tied to the themes of Christianity. And so it's anything from this, a Japanese form of art, uh, to uh, something uh, painted by uh, Michelangelo. And you see very definitive um, natural forms. And, and the idea there is to try and create something that is exactly as it looks in nature. It's realism. And so... We have to think about these things. Is this Christian? And as a Christian, how do I think about it? Does knowing something about it change the way I think about it? And if it doesn't change it, can I at least admire it and be thankful for it and enjoy it, even if I don't walk away from it uh, with some deeper sense of, of meaning or understanding? So we're out of time. I'll stop there. Uh, hopefully... Um, you have some time this week to at least think about some of these questions and maybe we'll narrow in on some more uh, definitions as we go ahead. So let's pray together. Father, thank you again for our time. Thank you for uh, the craftsmanship that you have given that your people might be faithful sub-creators in this world. That as we think about uh, what you have done in creating this world in gifting people, in filling them with the Spirit, uh, that we might be faithful stewards of the gifts that you have given. We pray, God, that you would help us to understand more, to appreciate more. And while we may, at the end of these weeks, not walk away with any uh, greater uh, depth of feeling or... Um, or even understanding of specific elements that we can at least have a better understanding of how you have instructed us to think about these things from your word. That we might see something and not write it off, but at least appreciate the skill, the craftsmanship, the beauty, and what you have provided for your people that these kinds of things might be created for our enjoyment. And so we pray now, Lord, as we enter into our time of corporate worship, that it is beautiful. The music that is sung, the words that are proclaimed and prayed and preached and heard from your word, that we would see them in their beauty because it is all a reflection of your nature and your character for the good of your church and for your glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.